Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. This week we'll be sitting down and chatting with Professor Ricardo Rees. After earning his PhD at Harvard, he became one of the youngest full professors ever at Princeton, age 29. Since then, he's went on to advise several central banks and has returned to teach at the LSE, where he first studied his undergrad. Where early in the series, we discussed the financial crisis of 2008, its impact on the UK and economics as a whole. Here we'll be evolving that discussion to one of the Eurozone, how the financial crisis impacted the Eurozone, and then how it targeted specific structural weaknesses therein. Finally, talking about steps the Eurozone could take beyond this and to continue in its growth. We hope you enjoy. First question, why macroeconomics? What do you find interesting about it? Well... I mean, I was attracted to economics as a very young boy uh, because I like the combination of rigorous, mathematical, logically precise analysis as it applied to historical events. Um, I was I, My favorite subject when I was in high school, when I was younger, was definitely history. But I thought that um, the economics approach of trying to go after these questions using precise models was a both fun and fruitful one. Given that's where I came from, I don't think it's not completely surprised that I ended up in macroeconomics because it's precisely where we try to understand some of the big events of why, in when you look at a classical history education, why some nations rose, why some fell, why did we have better outcomes and worse outcomes at different points. So I think that, that was my starting point. Then, you know, I was fortunate to study here at the LIC, have very good macro teachers. In particular, I learned intermediate macro from Charlie Bean and Chris Pissarides. And later on, in my third year, from people like, at the time, Ricardo Lagos, Urzo Lutmer, Elen, or Elen Ray. Uh, and those were just fantastic teachers who showed how macroeconomics, indeed, had the potential to explain and to answer some of the questions that had attracted me to the field in the first place. So I would say, from a purely personal perspective, that's where I came to it. More generally, I think what's exciting about macro is precisely that you ask, as the name indicates, big, important questions. I think there's a trade-off always. Do you want to, want to ask small, narrow questions and get very precise answers? Or whether you want to ask somewhat bigger questions, knowing that then the answer will never be quite as satisfactory. I've always been happy to settle for not satisfactory answers in exchange for pursuing bigger questions. And that's what attracts me more to the macro rather than the micro side of the profession. You've said that being a macroeconomist involves some combination of researcher, policy advisor, teacher, and forecaster. Which of these do you find the most fun? Well, I think they're all precisely complementary, so it's not quite of a question of which one to pick, but it's precisely that they come in a bundle. I think teaching uh, a subject is the best way to understand it very deeply. I think knowledge in any topic usually comes with lots of questions and lots of complicated answers. And then once you finally are able to understand it, that comes with understanding really that the answers are actually quite simple. And teaching is the best way to see whether you've gotten there, whether you understand that really what the crux of the argument is, whether you can simplify to the point that you can teach it in 20 minutes, even if it took you months to understand exactly what's going on and initially you toyed with complicated concepts. So in terms of research and teaching, I find them to be very complementary in the sense the ultimate goal of research is to get to the point you understand something well enough that you can actually teach it. So that's on those two. Likewise, when you come to policy advice in a sense or trying to understand what are the different policy options, 
I find that policy questions is what ends up driving a lot of my own research. It's exactly policy is a great way to get questions that are interesting and that are relevant. Uh, and so they often feed off feed very naturally into research. Finally, you talk about forecasting. Now forecasting is something that as any well-trained macroeconomist will tell you, some of the one avoids doing to a great extent. But I'll, let's say instead of forecasting prediction, why would a certain policy we think have some outcomes and some not others? Obviously, the only interesting forecasting questions, in my view, are perhaps too extreme. Almost all interesting forecasting questions or prediction questions, to be more accurate in economics, are policy questions. Are policy counterfactuals? What if the Treasury did that? What if the Bank of England did this? So the connection between those two, to me, is I extremely direct. And the only way to give proper answers to that is through research, because the only proper answers to any prediction question is, under this set of circumstances, I think this is what happens. Under that set of circumstances, this is what happens. And then if you really understand something better, you can even put numbers into the different set of circumstances and therefore make a probabilistic forecast. You know, the economies are not deterministic systems to start with. And second, our knowledge of the economies is very far from making the logical links deterministic as opposed to being having errors and lacks of knowledge at every step, which is that the best one can wish for is to make probabilistic forecasts where as important as a probabilistic a probabilistic assigned to different scenarios is understanding what is the mechanism and what are the key forces and key variables keeping track as you proceed in time and need to update those probabilities. So that essentially, I think, is ultimately what research is all about. And ultimately, like I said, once things get simple enough, what teaching is about as well. So your research starts off a lot looking at things like inflation expectations, surveys. And then now a lot of that is um, it's central bank's balance sheets. And, and how the world is different post-crisis, and as you say, a lot of policy work. So if your career has underwent this shift post-crisis to describing this new normal, do you think that's the norm? Do you think macroeconomics as a whole has followed this equivalent change post-crisis, or is it similar to the world before? Ooh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't portray myself in any way as either representative or being a trendsetter <laughs> in terms of the profession. But let me start precisely with, as you asked, kind of, what's been that intellectual path that I have followed the way you've put it, and then try to then extrapolate a little bit to the profession. Uh, you're right. So I started my career in macro asking questions having to do with essentially inflation dynamics, uh, both in terms of understanding why inflation goes up and goes down, as well as how inflation is affected by monetary policy, and finally linking both the so-called Phillips curve, that is, wow, is it that inflation is related to movements in real activity and the ups and downs of uh, out output and unemployment. So it's true that I started there and I was excited about those questions. Uh, but I think post 2008, I moved a little bit away from those questions, 2008 and 2010, simply because if you look at the last 10 years of macroeconomics, or last 10 years not right since we were in 2020, if you look at the period between 2008 and 2018, I think inflation was not the most interesting macro variable by a long shot. Inflation was essentially incredibly stable during those 10 years. Inflation expectations were incredibly stable and anchored during those 10 years, or at least eight years, let's say. Um, and given how many interesting things were going on in terms of, you mentioned central bank balance sheets, the Great Recession, of course, uh, the intersections between the financial sector and the macroeconomy, those seem just much first order, more interesting topics to investigate than really inflation did.
Now, it's funny you ask that because I am working again on inflation expectations over the last 6-12 months, precisely because I think inflation is getting interesting again. And it's getting interesting because of the um, now very persistent deviations of inflation from target at the ECB, which I've not for many years, but all to a slightly less extent in the, uh, Euro, in the U.S. as well. But as interesting, the fact that inflation expectations, which have been so incredibly anchored for a decade, have now started trending downwards, especially longer inflation expectations, which have really trended downwards in the last 18 months. And so I find that, again, those questions are becoming exciting, interesting again, and here I am working on them again. Now, you asked about the profession. I think the profession has changed in many ways. It always is. I mean, in a certain sense, uh, it's always at responding to a mix of what is the new technique that allows us to answer things that we did before, what are new questions that policymakers asked, what are recent events in the world that kind of require an explanation? I mean, ultimately, researchers are driven entirely by their curiosity, and these are the things that spike their curiosity and make them want to answer them. In that regard, I think it is a case that post pre-2007, work in the very narrow field of, let's call it monetary economics for the study of monetary policy in central banks, was pretty focused on questions like, should we raise or lower interest rates a little bit more or a little less? What is the slope of the Phillips curve? what's going on with inflation expectations and their link to inflation. And I think post-2007, it's very natural that, again, the bigger questions had much more to do with macrofinance interactions, um, why cri big crises happen, how do all these unconventional monetary policy central banks work or do not work. And those are questions that are certainly somewhat different. And so I think I certainly was not unique in moving away to some of these others. So you talk there about the kind of stable tenures between 2008 and 2018. The decade prior to the crisis is also famed for its stability. Exactly. To the point that it's referred to as the great moderation. And yet, in that time period, between 2000 and 2012, uh, the Portuguese economy grows less than the United States during the Great Depression and less than Japan during its lost decade. So do you think um, Portugal shows weak fundamentals that are then exacerbated or drawn out by the crisis, or do you just think it's this outlier? So, um, it's not an outlier, and I think that's why it's important to study it beyond the fact that you may happen to be interested in this small economy in between the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. What I think is interesting about the Portuguese economy, and which I've written about it, is that um, the phenomenon of between 2000 and 2008 it's stagnating, I think I call it the Portuguese slump in an article about a decade ago, is essentially shared with Ireland, Spain, Greece, and especially Italy. And so now all of a sudden that's a lot of countries to understand. Especially because this slump happens during a decade that should have been incredibly good for these countries. Ultimately the big change in 2000 was the euro for all these countries. And the euro was just not, was not just a monetary union, it was capital market union. That is, the introduction of not just the common central bank, but especially a series of reforms to create a more integrated financial and capital market, should have implied, and those were certainly all the forecasts, that these countries would not only trade more, but the other side of that trade, that we would have more capital flows flowing from the rich to the poor countries, and therefore speeding up the process of conditional convergence. Indeed, we saw that. We saw very large capital flows from the core of the euro area to the periphery of the euro area. And again, we, the prior, I think, was that this would be a good thing. This would lead to an increase in output growth and converge in these periphery countries. 
But as and more importantly that, there was certainly a view that part of the reason why these countries are not quite as rich as the core was because they lacked financing, interest rate. It was very commonly noted in the 80s and 90s how Spanish firms faced much higher interest rates than French firms and that lowered their ability to compete because they could not make the investments in fixed costs that would allow them to um, uh, uh, they would allow them to raise their productivity through those investments. So you would have expected that productivity would increase, that convergence would have happened. Instead, what we saw is that as the capital moves in, productivity falls. And so as a result, K goes up, but A goes down in econ production function lingo. That is, in a period in which you're absorbing, you're getting all this capital from abroad, you, in some cases, don't grow at all, Italy and Portugal. In Spain, Ireland, Greece, you grow some but much less than the increase of capital would justify. That is, productivity falls like a rock. Productivity stagnates. What's common across all these periphery countries is the stagnation of productivity in the 2000. How can that be? Why is that? If anything, you might have said productivity would either not have changed or should have increased slightly because you now could fund the investments. Well, what I think the experience of the periphery countries ends up showing is a phenomenon that a very famous economist in the 1980s that said Latin America, a man called Carlos Diaz Alejandro, at um, studied very influentially, which is that when some of these countries, when some countries open up to large capital flows and benefit from them, what we see is not the miracle of economic convergence, but rather that many of these capital flows end up being allocated to the most unproductive sectors, to the most unproductive firms. The process through which these capital flows, when these countries get the financial integration, but they don't have the financial depth. Where by financial, I simply mean the whole mechanism through which, through which capital is allocated in a country. That includes not just the banks themselves, but also the political system and everything that an economy leads to, or the entrepreneurship, that is everything in economy that leads to the allocation of funds across uh, different uses. What you see is that, as I was saying, this financial integration without financial depth ends up leading to a big misallocation, a worsening of the allocation of the capital mechanisms, and as a result, a fall in productivity as many unproductive firms, unproductive sectors end up getting all this capital. And note, this is not just a case of, well, there's capital for all, some of it will go to unproductive ones. It's precisely because of this misallocation also implies that those unproductive firms are going to bid up for the wages and for the scarce other resources in the economy and therefore end up hurting the economy as a whole. I think what we see in this periphery countries, what I've called the misallocation hypothesis, that's an hypothesis that I proposed back in 2011 uh, in an article on the Portuguese slump, but I thought this is a more general phenomenon. Um, so that was my bold contribution to that debate. I think the evidence that I've seen in the last seven years, many people have now worked on this topic, um, on this hypothesis that I put forward. And I think most of the evidence has actually been very supportive, although obviously I'm biased. But I think it's been quite supportive that this is a big part of what happened during that period. So the EU is then hit by two crises. You have the financial crisis in 2008 and then the sovereign debt crisis in 2012. Do you think the Eurozone zone performs poorly or is damaged by these because they are unique of nature? The financial crisis is unlike anything else? Or do you think um, there was such weak fundamentals because of what you've described <coughs> that really anything could have knocked the system over? Mm, I wouldn't say that any... No, I would disagree with anything could have knocked it over. I think the Euro area... Um, being a recent construction, still had, how should I say, design weaknesses. Still wasn't perfectly built. It also was the nature of the construction of generally the growth of the European Union, not just the Eurozone, that 
not everything gets sorted, but the idea being that, well, when a crisis hits, we'll finish putting the foundations and so on. And so if you want, there were a few holes in the roof that hadn't really been covered yet. And it just happened that a storm came and the house flooded a little bit. That's a little bit the way I would see it. Now, what are some of these holes? I think, and let me mention more than the ones that got fixed, because I think many got fixed in 2010 and 2012 or even 14. There are still some holes. And I think the fundamental hole now is what I like to call kind of this, uh, this triangle of weakness right now. The triangle of weakness is the following. On the one hand, Europe continues to have very large banks, very large banks which, therefore, uh, cannot be credibly sustained through national deposit insurance. It's simply not credible the deposit insurance offered by Spain to the large Spanish banks or, for, or even by Germany to the large German banks would be able to prevent bank run equilibrium uh, if a liquidity crisis came. So a European-wide deposit insurance seems to be needed because these are European banks. They're not really, Deutsche Bank is not really a German bank. They're operating all over Europe. So that's the first thing. Now, for deposit insurance to be offered, though, it must be that there has to be a um, euro-wide regulation and supervision, which already exists, but importantly that these banks cannot uh, bear too many risks on their assets that are especially national risks. If the deposit insurance is European, the risk can't be national. Meaning, what I have in here in mind in particular is the tendency of banks, for very good reasons, to hold a lot of bonds of their own sovereign, which means that they're then very exposed to sovereign risk of their sovereign, and therefore that a default by that sovereign is a loss to the banks. Now, if you have a European deposit insurance, but you allow for banks to hold a lot of bonds of their sovereign, what you're really creating is an ability for an individual country to finance itself at the expense of Europe by simply defaulting on its banks and having the rest of Europe pick up the insurance that bails out the banks. So what you need, secondly, is to have regulation supervision that forces banks to have a diversified portfolio or even better, a European safe asset. That leads me then to the, three, the third vertice of the triangle, which is you need to create a European safe asset. That is important even by itself beyond the triangle because the euro, which was an international currency that took roughly, was occupying roughly a 10-12% share of payments, has really suffered in the last decade. With the crisis, the euro, which was in a steady short pace of trying to rival with the dollar, or at least even just be in the, in the room when it, we talked about international currencies, has essentially retreated. Um, the Remnibi has taken some of that role precisely because over the last 10 years, I think a very important part is that the last 10 years were characterized through the financial crisis for a demand for safe assets by investors, and the euro simply doesn't supply them. Um, simply, euro safe assets are those national bonds issued by only a small handful of countries, and there just aren't enough of them to be able to provide all the collateral and all the needs for safe assets that are needed to develop the use of a currency. So, European safe asset because of that, as well as because banks could hold them and that could make the deposit insurance possible. So, I see those as three reforms, that incomplete triangle, deposit insurance, risk, um, risk management of national sovereign bonds, and the European safe asset to be crucial for the next crisis not to be there. That's the hole in the roof that's still fixed. That's still to fix. Let me, though, conclude that by saying that one should not be, though, too pessimistic or at least too critical in some ways of the Euro area project. The U.S. created this Federal Reserve in 1913, and 20 years later, 
we're in the middle of the Great Depression, which we now somewhat agree was partly to blame on the Fed itself. Uh, we had incomplete to inexistent deposit insurance. We had miscoordinated different branches of the Federal Reserve System. So if you compare the, where the ECB or the Euro system is now 20 years into it to where the Federal Reserve System was 20 years after, it doesn't look that bad. Let's just put it that way. So we have to have a little bit of perspective on how much the ECB and the Euro system has accomplished so far. But at the same time, be critical in that things need to be done and those things need to be done sooner rather than later so that we don't have a new crisis. And then what were the, what were the achievements? What, what do you look back on the ECB having done very well? Oh, I think well? the enormous achievement is precisely going back to being in this interview, the fact that inflation has been incredibly stable. I mean, it's been 20 years of incredible... If you look at the first decade of the ECB and you draw a line with a 2% slope, 10 years after, in 2010, the ECB was smack on target. That's just remarkable. Again, the last four years has been a little below target, but still, compared with any other monetary regime, that essentially every country in Europe had lived for. Even Germany, which had, through the Bundesbank, very good inflation performance, the last 10 years are just remarkably successful in terms of just how inflation has been stable. Ultimately, that's what a central bank is about. A central bank is an agency that controls inflation, that delivers on an announced target, that makes sure that inflation, inflation expectations, and inflation target, all three line up. And from that perspective, the ECB has done a remarkably good job. So if inflation has been at 2% for the past decade and similar-ish in the UK and in America, do you think we've solved monetary economics? Can we all go home? No, not quite. Again, I think there's... First of all, as I told you, it hasn't been 2% in the last 10 years. It was 2% in the first 10 years of the ECB. In the last five years, it's been 1% on average. So it's actually been quite below. Now, you may say that's not a big deal. Having said that, the I'm much... I'm more worried than that. Why? Because we have partly solved the inflation problem. I wouldn't say all the monetary economics is an inflation problem, but we solve it through a combination of independent central banks, very clear and transparent inflation targets, and very aggressive central banks focused on the inflation problem. If you were to tell me we're going to stick at that, at the institutional range we've had in the last 20 years, do I hope that the next 10, 20 years would also be equal assessed on inflation? Yeah, I probably would have. Not sure that would be, I would say that's a solution to the inflation problem, but at least to a first order, it's a very good performance. What's worrying, though, is that precisely because of that solution, this social framework is under great threat nowadays. One, we have that because the central bank has been asked to do so many things beyond inflation control, it is having trouble delivering on the inflation front. Two, that people are saying, especially policymakers, who cares about inflation, the problem is solved, Therefore, let me get the central bank to do all these other things that distract it from its goal. And you see that very clearly through very clear threats to central bank independence uh, by politicians, by policymakers, by public commentators, and the desire to put a series of other goals and objectives on the central bank um, that will precisely distract her from inflation. And if there's something we know from 200 years of studying inflation, if there's something we know from monetary economics, as you put it, is that... It is very easy for if the central bank sees as its goal to manage the public debt in the past, to generate senior revenues for governments, or simply to pursue other goals, for instance, even just uh, obsessing too much about eliminating the business cycle, invariably these have ended up with high and runaway inflation and then very painful measures to bring inflation back on target. So, no, I'm not in any way... Um, uh, if anything, I'm worried about the complacency towards the inflation problem, which is not to say that, yeah, if we kept the same framework the last 20 years, 
everything indicates that we seem to have been know how to solve the inflation problem. It's just that I think that precisely because of that, we forget easily, and particularly we get overambitious in other domains, that means that you end up uh, losing that solution. So the associated cost with inflation having been kept so low is that interest rates are accordingly also low. Mm -hmm. What scope do you think there is for the Eurozone when facing the next crisis, explicitly where the um, European Central Bank is, is, is not a national project, whereas fiscal policy is run specifically by each country? What do you think happens when the next thing, one comes around? Um, crisis will come and crisis will go. You point correctly that um, because inflation expectations have been below target, that has put pressure towards normal interest rates to also, on average, be lower than they could have been. But, and perhaps more importantly, we have had a secular decline that now lasts, depending on how you look, I think maybe 20 years, some people would argue even longer, in real interest rates, which has contributed to then these low average nominal interest rates. Well, that implies that in terms of using its conventional tool of cutting interest rates, central banks have less room to respond to a recession or simply to try to uh, push up inflation and simulate inflation. Um, and that will limit their ability to fight an next recession. You note, well, fiscal policy should do more of it. I agree with you. Of course, as you also note, the national coordination of fiscal policies is limited and complicates things in the euro area. Um, on top of it, I would note that central banks also have a series of unconventional monetary policy tools from forward guidance to quantitative easing that allow them to respond somewhat to this. I think ultimately the answer to your challenge of what are we going to do in the next recession is, well, we are going to do a fiscal stimulus and a monetary stimulus, but your question was maybe the monetary stimulus is not enough because interest rates are too close to zero already, and maybe the fiscal stimulus is not enough because national authorities are not coordinated enough. In that case, uh, if those can't, how can we start thinking about addressing that problem? I would say ex ante, my own preference would be that we think about uh, raising precisely the real interest rates that are causing some of the problem. And how can we perhaps raise those real interest rates? Well, some of the reasons why real interest rates have been so low have to do with very large risk aversion and undersupply of safe risk assets. And so I have myself in my research been approaching this problem from thinking that maybe if what we want to do is raise our star, raise real interest rates, I'm sorry, um, then working on things like the automatic stabilizer of fiscal policy, working on things that lower the risk that people face and therefore lower the extent of savings they have to do to safeguard against those risks would be a way to precisely raise the real interest rate and avoid and create the necessary space for monetary policy. So that would be my preferred ex-ante outcome, even if exposed, I agree with you, that the space is lim more limited today. Do you think that we should also be investing in architecture for the euro to grow further? And then if so, what does that look like? Oh, absolutely. I've, essentially, I've answered you that question through my triangle. I think that's the that's a very important part. And like I said, I think also the architecture in terms of the role of the euro and the support of the euro through safe assets and through the creation of more markets that allow the euro to be a deeper financial market looking forward. So I would think yeah, those, are, those would be my priorities. But likewise, importantly, again, linking to the other answer to your question, preserving the independence of the central bank and its ability to focus on its main mandate, which is inflation control. And then to wrap up, what gives you hope? 
for what? First on the macro level, what performance of the euro, performance of Europe, um, we've talked about the threat of an oncoming another crisis. What, um, do you think, what looks good? Hmm. Again, I think monetary policy making over the last decade has faced enormous challenges and for the most part has responded well. So it gives me hope to know that uh, central banks have essentially stepped up to very big challenges and have, for the most part, delivered. Of course, I'm as critical as the next person in many ways. So that gives me hope. Second, it gives me hope that, in terms of macro performance, that here we are talking about the next recession, but it's been a while since we've had a recession. We've been doing fine um, just along, and I think one can also kind of excessively worry about the next recession coming. Um, in a way that um, prevents you from taking advantage fully of the current expansion and so on. There's no inevitability in recessions in themselves. Uh, obviously, one has to be vigilant, but it brings me hope that we've managed to go through all these years without a big recession. Third, it gives me hope, because you talked about the euro area, that in the periphery countries, we did see a little bit of reorganization, a little bit of the weeding of the misallocation due to the pressure of the crisis, and do the pressure of, the, of, of needing to raise them the problem, even though I'm still somewhat pessimistic because I don't see the pickup in productivity that I would like for, uh, that I would have liked to see. Um, finally, um, um, uh, yeah, uh, it gives me hope that generally I think uh, our knowledge of economics keeps on deepening, that in spite of, of course, the vagaries of politics, as they should, Ultimately, um, history of the last 200 years shows that uh, uh, progress is possible, progress is achievable. I think we know a lot, especially having to do with taxation, deregulation, having to do with safe creation of a safety net. I think we have lots of answers to make the world a better place uh, in terms of policy, in terms of academia now. We may not be adopting them all, but you know, little by little, I do. Being a person of ideas, of academia, I think that ideas end up winning, even if it takes a while. Professor Ricardo Riggs, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time.